As we read through this text in Exodus 19 of God giving us the law, it shows us the holiness of God. God is so holy that he says that Moses can come and talk to him, but then he puts a boundary around Mount Sinai and says, if you even touch the boundary, you have to be put to death. You've got to be stoned or shot with an arrow. If your dog gets on the loose and decides to run up the mountain, you've got to kill your dog. If your cow touches this boundary, if it wasn't for Christ and what he's done for us on the cross, we would have no access to a holy God. We would have no opportunity to be able to approach him. But because of Jesus, the mediator, because the law points us to our need for Christ and Christ died for our sins, instead of there being a boundary between us and God, we have open access into the presence of God. To say, come into my throne room and receive grace in in time of need. So this is a really important section of scripture because it helps us understand the holiness of God and what Christ accomplished for us when he died for our sins. So let's go to Exodus 19. The children of Israel are traveling through the wilderness and they come to Mount Sinai in verse 1. In the third month, after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim and come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. There's six prior stops that are recorded for us. This is the seventh stop. They've been traveling for about three months. It's the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of Egypt. God leads them to Mount Sinai in the wilderness. Numbers chapter 10 tells us that they're going to be at Mount Sinai for 11 months. So they're camped out here for 11 months And this is the most significant time for them because this is where God gives to them the Ten Commandments, gives to them the law and the instruction of how to build the tabernacle. Now the timing of when God gives the law correlates with the Feast of Pentecost. You'll also remember the Feast of Pentecost is when God gave the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. When the law was given by the children of Israel, not recorded in this section, but later on in in Numbers, we find the golden calf. While Moses is up on the mountain, they turn to idolatry. As Moses comes to deliver the law, they've already broken it, and 3,000 people die on the day the law was given. Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost. On the book of Acts, with the Feast of Pentecost... The Spirit's given. How many people are saved? 3,000. The Spirit of God does what the law of God could never do. The law of God couldn't produce a righteous life, but the Spirit of God empowers us to be able to live for the Lord. So roughly about the time of the giving of the law is the timing of the Feast of Pentecost, which also the Spirit was given on Pentecost 1,400 years later. In verse 3, And Moses went up to God, And the Lord said to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So the basis of God giving the law to the children of Israel is I have brought you out of Egypt. Remember my deliverance in your life. 
Remember my faithfulness that I bore you on eagle's wings. Probably as Moses is on Mount Sinai, he's watching some eagles soar. A beautiful sight. And the message is, is, I had you on my wings. My faithfulness to you. Same's true in our lives. We need to remember God's faithfulness. We need to remember him bringing us out of sin, saving us, adopting us as his sons and daughters, ways that he has been faithful to us through the years, how he's bore us up on his wings. As we wait upon the Lord, we, we soar on eagle's wings, God's faithfulness in our lives. In verse five, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. The old covenant is based on obedience. It says, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, then you shall be my special treasure. The new covenant of grace isn't based upon our obedience, but Christ's obedience. On the finished work of the cross, of what he's done as we believe in Christ, then we receive all of the spiritual blessings in Christ, then we get to respond to that. Peter picks up on this in 1 Peter 2 verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God choosing the nation of Israel was never to be at the exclusion of other nations. God wanted Israel to be a light unto the Gentiles, but they forgot that to the point where they didn't even want to rub shoulders with Gentiles. And for us to be God's chosen people, his special people, it's not to the exclusion of those that don't know Christ, but the purpose is so that we could be light into the darkness. So if we kind of get in a holy huddle and we forget about the lost, then we've forgotten one of the purposes for which God saved us, to be, to be a light unto the world. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. This is ministry. This is being a servant of the Lord. This is being used by God. As God speaks to us in the word, then we're faithful to share that with others. Moses shares what God had spoken to him. Then all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. So they're like, we're in. We'll do whatever. Yeah, go meet with God. Come down with God's requirements and we'll do it. And our intentions are good, but our follow through is lousy, isn't it? The children of Israel are like, yeah, we can be holy. We can keep these laws. There's only 10. Sure, you don't want to add a couple more, right? And in the whole entirety of the law, there's 613 commands. But what God writes with his own hand is the 10 commandments that we're, we're going to study tonight. One of the purposes for the law is it drives us to Christ. It's our schoolmaster that drives us to Christ. All of the Old Testament is showing us our need for a Messiah, for a Savior. If God didn't give us a group of laws, we'd probably say, do you really need to send your son? Why don't you just give us some rules and I think that we can be righteous in and of our own efforts. If we were there, we probably would have said all in, not even realizing our own frailty. In verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in a thick cloud, and the people hear when I speak with you, 
and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. So there's going to be this thick cloud over Sinai. God's going to speak, and it's going to be loud enough for all of the children of Israel to hear. This is a special time for the children of Israel. They're going to hear the voice of God. In verse 10, then the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them, consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So there is to be three days of consecration, three days of getting ready. And God says, I want to make sure that you wash your clothes. Now, was God offended if they were stinky, right? Like, I really don't like dirty clothes. Washing the clothes was an outward sign of what God was intending to take place in their hearts and their lives, that they were to prepare themselves with expectation to meet with God. Then on the third day, God was going to show up on Mount Sinai and speak. This is a lesson for us, I think, in hearing God's voice and drawing near to the Lord is to come with expectation, to prepare ourselves to meet with the Lord. Maybe to allow the word of God to wash us and to cleanse us, to confess our sin before the Lord and say, God, I really desire to to meet with you. So I'm coming with expectation. I'm coming with pen and paper. Oh, it's Wednesday night. I'm preparing myself to, for worship. Oh, it's Saturday night. It's, it's Sunday morning. I want to prepare my heart to hear from the Lord. I'm coming with expectation. I'm washing my clothes, if you would. Prior generations wrote a lot about this. When it came to meeting with the Lord or congregational worship, what we're doing together this evening, is the whole church would prepare themselves to say, I want to draw near to God. I want to make sure that I'm there and I'm ready and I'm anticipating being able to to hear uh, the voice of God. And I need to hear that. I need to be challenged in that. Because sometimes when it's doing quiet time over and over again or prayer time over and over again or coming to Wednesday night study over and over again, last week we had pitch a day as a staff. We went through the nooks and crannies of the building to find things that we could get rid of and use the space more effectively. And one of the closets in the new high school room were all of the masters of my old teachings. CDs. I'm not quite old enough for cassette tapes, but (laughs) CDs. So we were going through the website and looking at the archive to make sure that these teachings were on the website before we pitched, pitched the masters. And it hit me, man, I've been doing this a lot of years. We're actually going through the dates and 2005, 2007, 2010, and 2015. And some of these books I've taught like three or four times and they're all on the, on the webpage, right? And after doing it over and over and over and over again, you're like, I know, I've been listening to you over and over and over again, right? You can kind of lose that expectation, that excitement of, man, God's going to speak, we're going to open up the word of God. We're going to meet with the Lord. We're going to, we're going to draw near to the Lord together. You know, spending time in God's word privately and, and, and getting into the word like, Lord, I'm hungry. I, I'm consecrated. I'm, I've set apart myself to be able to, to hear from you. I think there's a lot to this in hearing from God when we come with this kind of expectation. 
Why does the Lord say the third day? Well, Christ rose from the dead on the third day, didn't he? And all of this points to Jesus. So it's purposeful that God's going to come down on the third day. Because Christ rose from the dead and his glory was revealed in his resurrection. So verse 12, you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, take heed to yourself that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountains shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. So God says, look, my presence is so holy, you can't come. Here's this boundary around Mount Sinai, and if you even come and touch that boundary, then you have to be put to death. We contrast this with Christ dying upon the cross and rising again. The veil's torn in two, isn't it? And we're told in Hebrews chapter 4 that we can come boldly to the throne room of grace. So instead of having a boundary where we can't enter into God's presence or we'll die, we have an invitation. We have a place at the throne room of God, and that speaks to the magnitude of Christ's sacrifice. That speaks of the magnitude of Jesus being the mediator. Without Christ, it's like, I can't even hear this. God, it's too much. This is, this is, this is too powerful. I, I can't even get close. That there's a boundary here. If I touch it, I'm dead. You know, my dog's dead. Nothing can even be able to come close to your presence. It's not surprising that God wouldn't be in the presence of sinners. What is surprising is that he would make a way for sinners to be in his presence through his son. Amen? So this boundary really speaks of the holiness of God without Christ that we wouldn't be able to come into God's presence. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. So as you can imagine, you know, this three days of washing and preparing their hearts, what's going to happen on the third day? And he said to the people, be ready for the third day and don't come near your wives. So there was to be no sexual intimacy between husbands and wives during these three days. First Corinthians 7 says, the only reason to refrain from sexual intimacy is to seek the Lord if both the husband and the wife agree. So notice that it says, doesn't say, do not come near your husbands. That's not the issue. The ladies are like, I'm fine for three days, right? It's the husbands. He's got to speak to the husbands and say, hey, husbands, don't come near your wives. So. Yes and amen. Verse 16. <laughs> then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there was thunderings and lightnings and thick cloud on the mountain and the sound of the trumpet was very loud. So all the people were in the camp trembled. So the third day comes. It's in the morning. Then there's thunder and there's lightning. And there's a thick cloud. And there's the sound of the trumpet that's very loud. First Thessalonians 4 talks of a yet future day where a trumpet is going to be blown, says the dead in Christ are going to rise first. Those who are died but are Christians, that's when they're going to receive their glorified body. They're already with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Their spirit's with the Lord, but they're waiting for their glorified body. Heaven's probably much more like an eternal now, so I don't think they're waiting very long. But that's the moment the graves are going to open up 
with all of the Christians who've gone before us. And, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then believers who are alive at that point says we're going to be caught up. We're going to forever be with the Lord. The rapture of the church, the trumpet of God is, is going to blow. So the children of Israel are gathered at the trumpet of God. And ultimately, we're going to be gathered in God's presence when that trumpet is blown in the future. And Moses brought the people out to the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. So here you are standing at the base of Mount Sinai, and it's filled with smoke. There's lightning, and then all of a sudden the ground begins to shake, and this is still all before the Lord has spoken. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. So here goes the trumpet. And each time it gets louder and louder. It builds with intensity. And Moses speaks to the Lord. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. This event is talked a lot about in Scripture. We know that as Moses spent time with the Lord, his face, as he came down to the children of Israel, it glowed. But the glow was starting to fade. So he put a veil over his face so people weren't watching the mo glow diminish. <laughs> Paul writes about this, again, pointing to the emphasis of the Spirit, saying that we've been giving a greater opportunity than Moses. Let me read it to you. It's 2 Corinthians three seventeen and 18. It says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty or freedom. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as it is in the mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So Paul writes and says, we get to behold the glory of God without a veil in the face of Jesus Christ. And as we're beholding Jesus, then our lives begin to reflect who Jesus is. You think of a, a lake, and sometimes as a lake, as the lighting hits it just right, reflects the mountains, and, and you're seeing the reflection upon, upon the water. Our lives, when we reflect Jesus, when we're looking at Christ, we just begin to re reflect his glory. And Moses, that reflection effect was fading, but it doesn't have to fade for us. The Christian life really is beholding the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And as we're in that place of beholding the glory of God in Jesus, then the rest just begins to reflect from there. So, so Moses is on the mountain meeting with the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord and many of them perish. So here's the people that are like, man, God's voice, is, it's so powerful. I, I can't keep listening. I, I can't approach that, that boundary but yet there's something inside of them that's saying, I want to see God. I wonder what's going to happen if I cross over this boundary. And God knows that this is the heart of the people. And so he says, Moses, you better go down there before a lot of them perish. This is what's ironic. We have no boundary to 
the presence of God, but yet oftentimes we're not very interested. We've got open access and we're like, oh, right? And here they are with a boundary going, maybe it's worth risking my life. (laughs) Maybe it's worth it. I, I might press over this boundary to be able to see who God is. Also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Zion, to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, away, get down, and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. So Moses comes down and says, look, you guys can't break this boundary. And then chapter 20 fasts forward to the message that Moses receives upon Sinai, the Ten Commandments. Chapter 20, verse 1, And the Lord spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So of all of the commands that God gave to Moses, these ten have the priority. These ten, specifically, Scripture says that God wrote with his, with his hand. The Ten Commandments also were to be preserved in the Ark of the Covenant, So these commands, they stand out. And it begins with saying, I'm the Lord, your God. It's personal. God's personal with the children of Israel. Again, reminding them of, I brought you out of of bondage. The commands, these 10 commands, they drive us to Christ in showing us our need for salvation. Because when we read through them, we realize that we failed, that we need a savior. But also, it drives us to Christ for Christian living. It drives drives us to Jesus to be able to say, it has to be Christ in us that empowers us to be able to live this way. Because we're not under the Ten Commandments in the sense that we have to do these things in order to be saved. But this is still the way that God intends us to live our lives. But the difference is, is we're not trying to live this way to earn salvation, we're trying to live this way in response to salvation. The first four commands are directed towards how to love God. And then commands, the last six commands, are on how to love our neighbor. Jesus summed all of this up in the great commandment. Love the Lord God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So as we read through this, we go, Jesus, I need your help to be able to live this way. Jesus, I need you to be able to provide salvation and also provide Christian living. So here's the first command. You shall have no other gods before me. God wants to be number one. He wants to be our ultimate object of worship. As he's number one, it's that he's all-consuming. That was the message that the author of Hebrews took from this event of Mount Sinai is listen to him because he's an all-consuming fire. He desires to have his place of having our worship. The Apostle John, as he's writing his letter, his epistle, he writes this beautiful letter on the love of God and how we're to love one another. He ends the letter with a warning to idolatry. He says, keep yourselves from idols. So an idol is anything that becomes more important to us than our relationship with God. This was the Achilles heel 
for the children of Israel, this is what caught them more than anything else was idolatry. To begin to serve the gods around them instead of being dedicated wholly to the Lord. Sometimes it's sinful things. Sometimes they're good things that become too important to us and we place them before the Lord. God is good at knocking down our idols. When we place things before him, when we have had other gods before him, he has a way of saying, look, I love you. I'm not going to allow that to have number one in your life. No other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself the carved image in any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. No idols. Don't form idols. Don't take something from my creation and make an idol. So much of false worship has to do with the sun or the stars or or the ocean and creating some image that spurs people on to worship. They're not to make some image of God. Like, well, this is what we believe God looks like, so we're going to make a statue because then the focus becomes on the statue instead of upon the Lord. One of the things that we have to remember with idolatry is these statues that they would make, these images that they would bow down to, identified with the the ideology in which they believed. A lot of these idols were sexual in nature because the false gods had some sexual perversity that was involved in it. When you see somebody that loves sexual sin so much that they put a Playboy bunny sticker on their car, they're saying what their God is. And their God is sex. And they're saying, sex is what I serve. I love it so much that I'm going to place an image up about it. They've created an idol, right? When we think of idolatry, it could be a house. It could be a car. It could be a pos- possession, right? It could be a sports team. It becomes so important in, in people's lives where Everything is about this particular sport, this particular professional team. Now, is it wrong to enjoy sports? Is it wrong to be a fan? No, absolutely. But I think as we look at our culture, we could go, you know what? For sometimes, for some of us, it gets to a place where this team has become an idol. I always love it when we're talking about our team, like we're on the Broncos. Like, we're going to play the Minnesota Vikings this week. You're like, really? I think you're going to be here in Colorado Springs, right? You know, you're, you're, not, you're not a Bronco, right? But, but it can just become so much to where then when someone's driving down the road and their God is represented in that image, in that Bronco image, that, that's their God. That's what, they're, that's what they're living for. And so these statues, these idols represented the ideology behind it. <clears throat> and here's God's heart. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God's not jealous of these idols, of these false gods, but he's jealous for us. He's jealous to be first place in our lives. Similar to how our husband or a wife would say, look, I'm not going to share you with someone else. I'm jealous for your affection and your love because that's the priority that a husband and wife relationship has. You can take this a lot of ways, but I hope you take it in this heart because that's how much God loves you. That's how much he wants to be in relationship with us, that that he is jealous to be first place in our lives. 
Continuing with verse 5, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So our actions and our beliefs affect future generations. And here God is saying, look, for those that hate me, I'm going to visit their sins for multiple generations. And a lot of people get stuck on that. But listen to verse 6. It says, to those that love him and keep his commandments, he's going to show mercy to thousands of generations, right? And if you believe in Christ, you love Christ, you're attempting to follow Christ, guess what? You're in the mercy side of this. You're affecting future generations in a positive way. And also, you're not under the curse of prior generations that didn't love and serve the Lord. I think sometimes believers give too much credit to past generations that are in the grave going, I'm still being punished for their sin. Good news, Jesus took the curse upon the cross. Right? He took all of that upon the cross and he, he died for that. So we're forgiven of sin and now we're under the mercy of God. So you don't have to live under this condemnation of maybe I'm being punished for my great-grandparents' sin. No, you're in the cross. You're in the love of God. You're, you're the, the child of God. You're on the mercy side of this. But for those that don't want anything to do with Christ, yes, then their iniquity is passed on to the third and fourth uh, generations. It's exciting to think about generations being impacted for Christ. You know? Pray for that. If God's blessed you with kids, pray that they would know the Lord. If God gives you grandkids, pray that they, they would, would know the Lord. And that godly legacy would just continue to be passed on. The next commandment that we're given. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Vain means to cause his name to be void of meaning. So to take God's name in vain, yes, it's in our words, but also in our actions and in our unbelief. So if the name of God and the name of Jesus simply becomes so common or even worse to where it's just a a cuss word or an expression of, of excitement that we would just flippantly pass on and there isn't that reverence of saying this is my god this is my savior this is this is my dad right and i'm not going to just use god's name in a way that's devoid of of meaning and maybe you've never understood that you've never had the opportunity to be instructed in that and you're like oh i get it now i get it when i'm just using god's name in a real common way i'm actually devoiding it of of meaning. But sometimes our actions can do the same thing, right? Maybe we're really good about technically not using the Lord's name in vain, but our actions, we use God's name in vain. Go, man, I believe in Jesus. I, I trust in Christ, but it doesn't mean a whole lot to us. There's not a lot of fear of God or reverence of God. It just has become commonplace where we give God lip service, but It's not impacting our our hearts in our lives. Sometimes, unfortunately, I use God's name in vain in unbelief, right? I look at the promises of God and my heart's not at a place of, of faith and I'm devoiding the name of God. I'm taking the meaning out of 
the name of God and the character of God and, and the promises of God. Verse eight, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who goes within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. God calling us to a place of rest. And this has to do with our relationship with the Lord. Some things take time. Many things take time. Relationship absolutely takes time. It's amazing what happens in our relationship with God as we rest. He's the example of rest. He didn't need to rest, but he chose to rest. He calls us to rest one day out of the week. Rest. Take a nap. Stop working. Get offline. Turn that sucker off. No email. Be still and know that he's God. Worship. Enjoy some recreation with the Lord. And see what happens in our hearts with the Lord as we rest. It's a step of faith of realizing I'm not the provider. I'm not the king of my universe. I don't need to go 24-7. If you were here last week as we heard that message of too much, with God speaking to Moses through Jethro saying, you're doing too much. Rest reminds us that God is, is the provider. See what happens in relationships as you just spend time together with no agenda. We're just resting. Let's just rest. Let's just enjoy the Lord. Enjoy one another today. Imagine the kind of conversations that happen just as you have time together. Some of the best conversations that I have and enjoy with Amber and the kids are not the planned ones. They're not the ones where it's like, okay, we're going to have a conversation. It's just as you're spending time together. You're stopping and enjoying the Lord together. It's amazing the kind of conversations that takes place. It's important to, to rest. Now we go into command six, five through 10, the last six that have everything to do with our relationship with each other. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the earth which the Lord your God is giving you. This is a timeless truth that God gives to us to honor our parents. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul notes that this is a unique promise because it's the first promise that's, or first, it's a unique command, excuse me, because it's a command with promise. As I look at this, I go, I want to know what the blessing is of honoring my parents. I want to experience that. God promises that there's going to be a blessing that comes from honoring our parents. Like, I want to know what that is. I want to be able to, to live inside of that. So we're called to obey our parents as we're children, but we're called to honor our parents throughout their whole lives. To honor them. And Jesus honors his, his father 
And we're to, to honor our parents that the Lord has, has given to us. And you may say, well, you don't know my parents. They're not very honorable. And honor the position sometimes when you can't honor the person. You go, okay, this is who they are, and I can't get behind all the things that they're doing, but they're still my parent. So I'm going to choose to honor them because the Lord calls, calls me to. It says a lot about our character when we choose to honor our father and, and mother. This promise that your days may be long upon the earth, it's more of the quality of our lives than the length of our lives. It's not a, necessarily a promise that if you honor your parents, you're going to be 90 years old. Jesus died at 33, right? But it's the quality of life of saying, man, I, I just know that this is the right thing and I have the peace of the Lord as I'm honoring my parents. Verse 13, you shall not murder. You shall not murder. So big question with this, um, is all killing murder? You know, is fighting in war murder? Or a police officer in the line of duty taking someone else's life, is it, is it murder? I would encourage you to study Romans 13 because it tells us that God raises up authority, that he raises up government. And as you're serving your country in those aspects, I don't believe that you're committing murder. So I hope that brings you peace if you're a soldier or police officer and you're rightly acting in, in the line of duty. This seems to be a command of God that we've really lost sight of is murder. We've lost the value of life, the sanctity of, of human life. When a baby is in the womb and a baby's taken in abortion, that's murder. And I know that's difficult to hear because some have participated in an abortion. And thankfully, God's a God of forgiveness and a God of restoration. But also, those babies don't have a voice. They don't get to speak for themselves. And so we have to be truthful about that to say, that is murder. And it's not right for a baby's life to be taken. And if you're contemplating having an abortion, there's so many people that would love to adopt your child. You know, I think that in faith, we could make a commitment and say, we could even find a couple inside of our church that would be willing to adopt your child and go through the, the legal process. But choose life and, and, and choose not to go down that road and go down that path. We see it now on the other end where here in Colorado, when someone is terminally ill, you can go to the doctor and the doctor says, hey, I realize you're terminally ill. You want to die. You're, you're just going to suffer. Why prolong the suffering? Here's a prescription. You go get the prescription. You take it. You die at home. Euthanasia. And we have to step back and says, God says not to murder. And that's murder as well because we're choosing to, to end our life. I don't think you have to do anything to, to prolong your life. It's not necessarily like, okay, I, I'm dying of cancer, so uh, I've got to go through this, this cancer treatment that's going to prolong my life three months. And in that sense, it's like, okay, I've got a piece of going home to be with the Lord, so I'm not going to do the, the cancer treatment. That's far different than going in and saying, I'm choosing to end my life now because I'm suffering. If I didn't go in and get this prescription, I would continue living for six months or, or, or six years. It still comes down to the same issue that life belongs to God. So who am I to be able to take a life? And I don't necessarily like this, but I believe that it's biblical is there's purpose in suffering. 
God's doing things in suffering. So if I have a terminal disease and I'm dying, it doesn't mean that it's not the will of God. It doesn't mean that God doesn't have a purpose for those two years of suffering. So for us as believers, it's like, no, I'm not going to take my life. I'm going to go through this suffering and see what the Lord has for me and how he's going to use this in my life and the life of others. Suicide is murder. It's murder. It breaks the heart of God. Under no circumstance are you doing a blessing to God or a blessing to those who are around you to commit suicide and take your life. You're sinning. You're sinning against God. You're murdering. You're murdering yourself. You wouldn't go out and murder someone else. You can't take your own life. You're playing God by taking your own life. In no circumstance is it right. Is no circumstance is it okay. Now, can God forgive? Absolutely. But was it the will of God? By no means. And you will have to answer to God, even as a believer, to say, the last thing I did in this life is I took the life that you gave me and wrestle that out with the Lord. And I do believe that God can forgive suicide, but I would not want to be in that place. I would not want to be in that place of saying, the last thing that I did on this life was not respect for the life that you gave me. God loves you. He created you. It's not your life. Even if you're suffering, even if you're in the place of saying, it's so painful, don't believe the lie of saying, I'm better off dead. My loved ones would have an easier time if I were dead. I can tell you from doing several funerals of people that have committed suicide, it is not better for that family member. You want to mess with your family? Commit suicide. You want to hurt them in a way that words cannot even begin to describe? Commit suicide. In no circumstance is it ever loving to do that to your family. It's twisted. It's absolutely twisted. The enemy loves to get in that space. He's a liar, he's tricky, he's deceptive, and he loves to come and say, look, you know, your wife's going to have it easier if you weren't here. Your kids will have it easier if you weren't here. Why are you going to continue to suffering? And at some point, we got to stop and say, okay, God's God. And he says not to murder, and that includes me as well. So I wouldn't take anybody else's life. I'm not going to take my life. And then, unfortunately, we're also seeing homicide just ramp up and ramp up and ramp up, aren't we? And it all comes back to the same issue of how do we see life? God created life, and to see that sanctity of life. You shall not commit adultery. God's design for sexuality is husbands and wives committed to each other inside of the commitment of marriage. Proverbs 6.32 says, Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding, and he who does so destroys his own soul. You shall not steal. The answer to temptation of stealing is hard work, to work hard. And then instead of having to steal, God provides for our needs through hard work. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is getting tricky with the truth. It's the right information with the wrong implication. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor his old Chevy truck. 
nor, nor anything that your neighbor has, right? Now, this is one of those that's a lot more acceptable in our culture. Murder, no. Stealing, no. Even adultery, no. But covetousness, by all means. By all means. It's not a big deal if you're covetousness. Just go get it. And then you'll, you'll be satisfied. But hear the words of Christ in Hebrews 13, 5. He says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. We don't need to be living in covetousness because Christ is with us. A few more verses and we're done. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountains smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. So this is so overwhelming. They're like, no more. We can't take it. Moses, we can hear from you, but we can't hear this anymore from God because he's so powerful. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. God is doing this to teach you the fear of the Lord. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near. The thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, you have seen that I have taken with you, you have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me, gods of silver or gods of gold you shall not make for yourselves. An altar of the earth you shall make for me and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings, your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen and every place where I record my name, I will come to you, and I will bless you. And if you make an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone, for if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. So God says, don't make the altar fancy. Why? Because we tend to make the altar an idol instead of the focus being upon the Lord. This drives us to the Lord. The law of God, the holiness of God, it draws us to a place of humility, of needing Christ for salvation, and needing Christ every moment to be able to walk with him. I want to leave you with these words. And he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the mountain to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Father, we choose to come to you in humility and we look at your majesty and we look at your holiness 
And there's no way that we could stand before you. We couldn't even hear your words, let alone see you, let alone be in your presence. And we know our sin, but we're so thankful for you, Jesus. And we're sinners, and we thank you that you're the sacrifice for our sin. And we also need you, Jesus, to live out loving you and loving others. So even as we take communion tonight, would you meet us afresh? In Jesus' name, amen.